Well, good morning. We're in chapter 3, verse 1 today. Um, Chapter 3 is the last block of uh, doctrinal or theological material. And when we get to chapter 4, we'll flip over and start to look at what we call the paranetic material or the practical, ethical material. One of the things that is so, uh, I think, good about Paul... Paul never gives us doctrine just for the sake of doctrine. Now, doctrine is important because doctrine is teaching, and so we need to be taught. But Paul never gives us just doctrine on its own. He always follows up and tells you what to do as a result of that doctrine. And so the the doctrine or the theological center of what we've been talking about so far... uh, is sort of wrapped up in that expression for this reason. And we ran into it, first of all, in chapter 1, verse 15. And now we're going to run into that same expression again in chapter 3, verse 1, and then 3, 14 or 15. So let me just ask you, for what reason? Why is Paul writing? What's What's he got on his mind when he writes this letter to these churches, Ephesus and others, in a predominantly Gentile part of the world, what's he got on his mind? What's he want to get over to them? Now, come on, be bold. You all know the answer. You're just being coy or whatever it is. For what reason? That's it. So that we might so live our lives that we bring glory To God, where? Through Jesus Christ. Through Christ and the church. That's the theme that he's been developing, and he will continue to develop that, because notice in chapter 3, verse 1, he picks up with that little expression, for this reason, again, and then he picks up on that in verse 14. And as I indicated in my notes, we've got a very interesting feature appearing in this chapter, or the first 14 verses of this chapter, which we call an anakaluthon. Now, I know that excites you, all right, uh, and an ellipsis. But if you look there at chapter 3, verse 1, in, like in my Bible, it says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, dash. You have that stroke, that dash in your Bible. That means he's changing gear on us. He's dropped that particular point and he's picking up another point, see? And so that that kind of style, when a a writer interrupts himself, uh, is what we call an anakaluthon. It's just an uh, abrupt change in direction. For this reason, now he's not going to leave that for this reason, because he's going to come back to it in chapter uh, 3, verse 14. The problem that scholars have in sorting out this anakaluthon and ellipsis that we have there, is we know pretty clearly where he starts. But it's difficult for us to figure out where he finishes that. And so some feel that he finishes this interrupted point in verse 7 and then comes back again. Uh, But others say, no, it goes all the way down to verse 13. Because he started with, for this reason, and then verse 14, he comes back to, for this reason. So you get the idea that he's picking up his thought 
that he dropped there for a while. Okay? So what we're going to do now is look at that block of material uh, from verse 2 down through to verse 13 and see what Paul is saying here. Remember, he's writing from prison. That's why it's called one of the prison epistles. He's writing to Christians that he might not know. Uh, he might, they might have been converted when he was preaching in Ephesus. But then he'd moved on. And so churches had spread throughout that part of Asia. And so we have churches in Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and other places, all associated with this uh, Ephesus church and this letter. So he's writing now to explain to these Gentiles what's going on here so that they would understand, Paul, who gives you the right to go ahead and tell us these things? Now, obviously, he's an apostle. He's clarified that already. But you get the idea is Paul is backing up what he's teaching with them and explaining to them why it is that he's writing this. So let's read through it and then come back and pick up. Notice he says here, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, just saying, I hope you can understand what's going on in this business of Christ. Right. Remember in chapter 2, he said that God had reconciled both Jews and Gentiles in one body uh, through Jesus Christ. So he's coming back to that theme. So you might understand the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Um, just pause there for a moment. We, we just shouldn't forget the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, they flat didn't like each other. They were enemies, just didn't get along. And it went both ways. Uh, the Jews just thought the Gentiles were unclean because they didn't keep the law. The Gentiles looked back and said, well, you folks think you're better than we. And so it was backwards and forwards. So how is God going to resolve that animosity and bring the Jews and the Gentiles together in Christ? So that's what Paul is talking about here. Of this gospel, <clears throat> now obviously uh, he comes back to the thought, this is good news, isn't it? That Jews and Gentiles can be joined together peacefully. This is good news. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I, I would imagine you can almost hear him saying, but also to you Jews, because you missed this as well. Okay, But nevertheless, and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery <coughs> hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Now, let me just park there. We talked about this way up in the first chapter. When did God formulate this plan that was a mystery? C 
come on. Why, why are you ladies so bashful here? Tell me, when did he do this? Before the foundation of the world. Way back there, before he created anything, God had a plan. And he's following his plan. And Paul tells us not only is he following his plan, he's able to follow his plan. All right? So God created all things that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We'll touch on that because it's rather interesting shortly. This was according to the eternal purpose, which means he designed this in eternity. His eternal purpose. Now I've got to find out where I was before I was. Okay, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose, which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I have, I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Right? So let's just drop back and pick up some of the thoughts that as he develops them here. And then we'll pick up with verse 14 with back to the original. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Um, that's an interesting thought. This, this is a, a rhetorical question, but it could be a non-rhetorical question. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but if you'd like to, that's okay too. All right? Um, let me see. I'm sure this is... You're going to say, Ian, you're sort of stupid here. How many of you believe you are justified by God's grace? I want to see a couple of flippy hands here. I want to see hands of those who believe they were justified by God's grace. Okay. Very good. Notice what Paul tells us, though, about this understanding that we have been justified by God's grace. It comes with what? A stewardship. What does a stewardship mean? Something's been given to us to do something with it. In other words, when we understand that we've been justified by God's grace, Paul is implying that we should be so excited about that that we're going to tell others. It's a stewardship that we have of God's grace. We'll come back to that thought in a little while. But I wanted you to see that Paul is saying here that this grace brings with it a stewardship that was given to me for you. How the mystery... And this mystery was simply how was God going to reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles together. Uh, it was made known to me by revelation. Now that carries two thoughts to it. Part of that revelation began on the road to Damascus. What happened on the road to Damascus? Jesus was revealed to Paul by revelation. I mean, it was revealed all of a sudden to Paul, this is Jesus. Okay, so all of a sudden, Paul understands now, wow, things are different. You see, this all focuses in on Jesus. But it's also revealed to Paul by revelation as God through the Holy Spirit instructs Paul and teaches Paul. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive, let's understand, my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that is, the Old Testament prophets. They had hints to this, but it wasn't clearly explained as it was to the apostles, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I just feel that we just need to go back and look at one little text there in Galatians because it's so relevant to what we're talking about. Galatians, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 3, verse 25. But now that faith has come, that's faith in Jesus, we are no longer under a custodian, that is the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, children of God, through faith. So, not through keeping the law. Jews and Gentiles are children of God through faith in Jesus. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise that God had made to Abraham back there beginning in chapter 12. So Paul is coming back to that same thought here again, that we're all, because of our faith in Christ Jesus, which obviously involves repentance and it involves the baptism and that, that's all summed up in that, which he clarified back there in Galatians. Now, of this gospel, I was made a minister. What, is a minister, what does the word minister imply to you? Hmm? A service, a servant. It's the same word. That is a servant. Sometimes when you read the word servant, uh, it's the same word as we're reading here for minister, which implies that a minister has a service to provide. But he was, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. <clears throat> now, if you just drop back to 1 Corinthians, we need to pick up with a thought that is really dominant for Paul and is so meaningful to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, I'm going to pick up with verse 1 just to get the thought going here. Now, he says, Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received... Uh, sorry, let me do it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That always, when I read that, uh, gets me interested, because this Jesus' appearance wasn't something done in secret just to the Twelve. I mean, 500 brethren at one time, Jesus appears to them. Then he appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. How many of us deserve to be 
children of God. We understand that. We don't deserve it. This is God's grace and his love. See, So as to one untimely born, I didn't deserve it. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles and fit, and fit to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So just looking at that passage, we can sort of gather what was the driving force uh, behind the Apostle Paul. Now, I, I mentioned to you a movie that uh, I went to see with my son and grandson, uh, uh, Paul the Apostle of Christ, which is a, a really a good movie. And it really starts out in a way that is rough. Uh, and when it started, I wasn't too happy about that. But as I hung in there, you get to see Paul in prison, instrumental music in the church. <laughs> All right, you get to get the idea of Paul and what he was going through in Rome in prison. I mean, you actually see him kicked and beaten and, you know, and he's in prison there, but you never see him complain about it or anything like that. And you sort of get the force. There's something that's really driving this man, this apostle, Paul. He's telling us what it was, how it was God's grace I was the worst of all people. I persecuted the church. But God, in his grace, called me, appeared to me. And it's that grace, that understanding of God's grace that drove Paul almost to the extreme. Well, it did. He died. They cut his head off. And so I think this is what... Paul is wanting these Ephesians also to understand what it means to be saved, justified by God's grace. I know normally when we hear that, we get sort of warm feeling, don't we? That this is really neat that God has favored us through Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't want us to sit there comfortable about that. He wants us to see that this should be the driving force in our lives. The realization of what God has done for us is what drives us to do what? Hmm? To so live that we bring glory to God in Christ Jesus. See, this is what Paul's got in mind as he's working through this toward the end of this section there. <laughs> Um, notice he says here, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now we understand the background behind that because the church in Jerusalem had a little problem with Paul and uh, Peter and Paul, and Paul eventually goes to Jerusalem to visit with some of them there, and they come to the understanding that he who had given Peter and the apostles the commission to preach to the Jews, had given that same commission to Paul. And they agreed, yes, Paul, you go ahead and preach to the Gentiles. Peter, you go ahead and preach to the Jews. Now, we know 
that that wasn't an absolute statement because Paul also preaches to the Jews and Peter already also preaches to the Gentiles. And Peter actually ends up in Rome where he dies preaching to the Gentiles. So it wasn't exclusive, but the point that Paul wanted them to see here is you Gentiles need to understand that this ministry that I have from God was special, especially for you to reveal the unsearchable riches of Christ. Can you just think about that for a moment? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, how big a mountain would that be if we started to pile them up? Well, let's just drop back to Ephesians chapter 1 there, when he starts out this whole story here. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, there's not a spiritual blessing that you and I can think of that God hasn't already provided for us in Christ Jesus. I don't know whether it was this class that I taught or one of the other classes. One of my problems at the moment is I'm a little bit mixed up, but you already know that. But I'm teaching three classes at the same time. I teach one on Sunday, and I teach one here Tuesday, and then the rest of the week I'm teaching one over in Ghana, Accra, on the Internet, and I, I forget sometimes which story I've told. All right. So if I've told you this story, forgive me, but it's an important story. In the seminary that I was working in South Africa with the Zulu and Kwaza people, training preachers, uh, we had a, a sort of a capstone course at the end of the, 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 before they graduated, and it was Colossians. And I taught that Colossians class. And I had just previously had a fabulous course at ACU under Dr. Eugene Clevenger on Colossians. And I had all of my notes, and I followed my notes so well. I was still young then, you know, which is a long time ago. But I followed my notes very carefully, and I gave them the same final exam that I had had at ACU to see how that they would handle it. And, man, they just knocked the top out of that, that final exam. And I was impressed. So we had this meeting, and they were all sitting there in their suits, you know, for this final capstone speech. And uh, it was hot. And... I saw one of the men do this, because his jacket was on. And as his sleeve came back, there around his sleeve was a goatskin bracelet. Now, if you understand the Zulu and Kosa people in South Africa, if you're wearing a goatskin bracelet, uh, you've, you've worn something like this. You went to the emergency clinic or to the hospital. What do they put around you here? A plastic thing, so they've got your name on so that they don't chop the wrong leg off or something like that. So, but you're identified, you see. Well, a goatskin bracelet for those people implies that you've just visited the Isangoma, which is a spiritualist. They, we might call them witch doctors, but that's a bad term. They were spiritualists that you went to if you had a problem, physical, spiritual, whatever, and the spiritualist would throw the bones and do the incantations and the rest of it to help you. And so here is my prime student, Henry Ndaweni, sitting there with a goatskin bracelet on, and I've just taught them Colossians. What do you think it said to me? You blew it. You taught them Colossians, but you didn't tell them how to impact their lives. And I said to Henry, Henry, why are you wearing that bracelet? He said, well, my wife's been sick. Very sick. And I've taken her to every doctor, white man's doctor, that I could go to, and they haven't been able to help her. 
So eventually I just decided I had to go to a Zulu doctor, which was the Isangoma. He just hit me and I said, Henry, haven't, don't you remember what we just studied over there in Colossians? That in Christ Jesus, he has defeated all of the spiritual powers and he's provided every spiritual blessing we need in Christ Jesus as we see here in Ephesians. But you know, we sometimes... Um, struggle under the same issue. When we have problems, it's amazing where we'll go sometimes uh, to get help. And I'm not implying that doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and fam- I better say family counsellors uh, are not bad. We've got one sitting right there and so I better get cover my ground. Did I do it okay, adequately? Yes, okay. Those are good, all right, that we go to people that can help us. But sometimes in desperation, we almost go beyond that, right? Uh, And Paul is saying what we need to do is just have deeper faith in God and in Christ Jesus. I don't know which, whether it was this movie we saw. uh, Yes, it was that movie, Christ, uh, uh, Paul, the Apostle of Christ. When a little statement is made when some of the Christians are going out to be cast into the, the Colosseum to be eaten by the wild animals and the rest of it. And Luke speaks to them and encourages them and reminds them of what Jesus had done for them and how he died on the cross. And he said, what you need to remember is that dying is like closing your eyes and going to sleep and waking up with Jesus. And to see the expression on the people's face when they realize that and see them walk out into the Colosseum is one of the moving experiences of that movie to where these Christians understood that dying is not the worst thing that can happen and being eaten by lions is not the worst thing. It's uncomfortable, not nice. (laughs) But if the lion is big and the lion's very hungry, guess what? It's not going to take very long, all right? One of the early saints who wrote letters to the churches in the second century wrote to these churches and they circulated around. He says, what I want, and he's on his way to Rome to, to die. And he says, what I want you to do is pray to God that the lions are hungry and that I'm not denied my discipleship. What was he saying there? This is Okay. Dying for Jesus is okay. And Paul has started out saying that. Remember, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus in Rome on behalf of you. Oh, my goodness, the unsearchable riches of Christ that we have because of God's grace. To make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Notice he's saying here that through the church, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places will come to understand what God is doing. That's the spiritual powers that he's talking about in in Ephesus and Colossians, you see. And so he's saying now... uh, that we might just through the church show to the world the wisdom of God. Now, keep this in the context. 
of Ephesians. And what is the theology of Ephesians that's going to cover all of the text? I want to hear it again. What is the theology of Ephesians that's going to cover everything? I picked on them down there. What about you folk over here? What's that theology that we read in Ephesians? That that we might so live our lives that we glorify God through Jesus Christ and the church. That's what Colossians is all about. So what does Paul have in his mind? And he says, I'm hoping that you Gentiles and Jews will be able to show the wisdom of God. How are they going to do it? By so living their lives that they may show the glory of God through the church and in Christ. Now, I know that we could jump into this text and import something from somewhere else. And when we say, I've heard sermons uh, preached on this, that it is the church's responsibility uh, to preach the gospel to the lost. Uh, at a time some years ago, any parachurch entity that sprang up like the Herald of Truth or Continent of Great Cities or anything like that, we had some folks said, hey, listen, it's not your responsibility to preach the gospel to those folks. It's the church. And if the church won't do it, you, know, you shouldn't be doing it. Well, they just blew this passage of Scripture. Because by so living their lives that they were going to see that the gospel was taken wherever it was taken is part of the story. But I wanted you to see here specifically, putting this text in its context of Ephesians, this is how we show the world out there what the church and what Jesus Christ are all about. It's a sad history that we have. Little church in Colorado had a big sign on a piece of land that they had bought, and this big sign said, the future home of the Church of Christ in this town. It was a big thing right on the highway, and it was impressive. But in a very short time, that little church split into two churches. And in a short time, one of those churches split again to where there were three now churches of Christ in that little town. Guess what they did about that sign? It became a joke in the city. Well, which church is going to be building the building? See, they took the sign down and sold the piece of ground. With those Christians, let me give you a little background, Matt. You know what the problem was? The songs they were singing in the worship service. They were importing too many of these songs that the young folk like to sing, that the old folk don't like to sing. Have you been there sometime? You know, I have to confess to you, I get a little stirred up sometimes when we sing these songs that I call 7-11 songs. They seven words sung 11 times, all right? Um, but guess what? My grandson thinks they're great. And if the young people think they're great, then what? We need to sing them if they're praising God. But this church split over the songbook that they were using because it didn't have those songs in it. And then they split again over the new songbook that they had. 
were they showing that community the manifold wisdom of God, how that we can all be one in Christ Jesus through the church? Now, that's what Paul is talking about here. If we just understand what our responsibility really is to bring glory to God, it helps us change everything. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. That's a a remarkable statement uh, to Gentiles and also to Jews that they can with boldness go into the presence of God and be with God. Can you think of another passage of scripture over there that was not written by Paul, but we sometimes think it was written by Paul? Hebrews chapter 4 and around about verse 10, somewhere in there, Paul says that we now, because of Jesus, have courage and boldness that we can go right into God and bring him our problems, whatever they might be. That's just something for the... The Jews, I mean, they were so afraid of getting it wrong that they wouldn't even say God's name in case they did it wrong. And if they didn't get it all right, you know, it was was something serious. And what are you talking about, Gentiles coming into the presence of God? I mean, that would have been an abomination to the Jews. But this is what Paul is saying here. It's by God's grace through our faith in what he has done in Jesus Christ, that we can with boldness go into the presence of God and talk to him. I think, you know, uh, uh, it took me a long time to learn that some of my best prayers, or let's just say my best prayers, were not the formal prayers that I paid. But they would be just times when I talked to God. And that happens very often because sometimes quite often uh, I go to bed at night time and I say to June kiss June goodnight say I'm going to go to sleep now I'm going to turn up I'm going to say my prayers which means hush (laughs) no I'm going to talk to God I'm going to say my prayers and I start praying and guess what I fall asleep (laughs) while I'm praying to God have you ever had that problem you know, just fall asleep while I'm praying. Uh, and then I chastise myself. I should say, you should do this in the morning instead of at night time. Okay? Then I turn around and I say to God, God, I hope you'll just forgive me for falling asleep while I'm talking to you. I didn't intend to, and I just talk to God. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to feel comfortable with him, that we can talk to him, as one who is really concerned for us. That's what this passage is saying here, that we can with confidence go right into the presence of God. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, just remember that little business, which is your glory. Okay. Now, having gone through this little theological discussion here, uh, Paul is going to come back to for this reason and pick up with the story. All right, So he's gone through this little business which he's trying to explain to these Christians and the Jews and the Gentiles what he's doing and why he's doing it. Because God, in his grace, has given him this responsibility. 
for this reason, okay, we're back to that same thought again. For this, what reason, Paul? That we might so live our lives that we bring glory to God through Christ and the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What's he mean by that? You, you know the answer to that. For this reason, I pray to God. For this reason, I pray to God. And that according to the riches of his... No, I've got to back off. For this reason, I, pray, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, for you and me, we say, yeah, that's right. But that was one of the major issues with some of the mystery religions and the philosophers that circulated in Israel, uh, Israel in uh, Ephesus, uh, that the God that they worshipped was the God over all. He was the God over everything. See, and uh, so Paul is picking up on that theme. He just wants to remind them: you folk know that. You talked about this. This is what where you came from. You believe that God is over everything. So I'm praying to that God, that according to the riches. Of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God I want you to just pick up on that one thought there this love of Christ surpasses knowledge let's go back to first or second lesson that we had and I mentioned that one of the problems that uh, Christians were struggling with in this part of the world at that time was a false teaching which we call Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T, Gnosticism, which is you're saved by having the right kind of knowledge. And if you don't have the right kind of knowledge, which you receive miraculously, you cannot be saved. So this was a major theme that was permeating both Judaism and Christianity at this particular time, increasingly so, uh, really hammered the church in the second century, in Rome especially, but it was a growing philosophy that said, if you don't have the right kind of knowledge, you cannot be saved. We've struggled with that in Churches of Christ because we have split in the church over doctrine. When you interpret something and I interpret it a different way, very often what does that end up in? A fuss. It ends up in a fuss. And too many times the church splits over who's right. And of course you know who's right in any discussion. Who's right in any discussion? Be bold. I am, there it is, I'm the one that's right. Isn't it difficult for us to give up on that, that we might not be the one that's right? But nevertheless, that's a part of the human tendency that we have living in the kind of world that we live in today. And Paul has that concept in mind here when he's speaking to these Gentile peoples who have 
plagued with this concept of Gnosticism. If you don't have the right kind of knowledge, you cannot be saved. Well, Paul and John and others will say, well, you're partially right. But this is what the right kind of knowledge is. It is Jesus Christ. If you have that kind of knowledge, that's the right kind of knowledge, but not this mysterious knowledge that we have. You know, we, we have that problem sometimes. We, we've got this promise here that God has given us his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Okay, and he dwells powerfully within us. To do what in the context of Paul? To so live our lives that we might bring glory to God in the church. That's why he's given us this Holy Spirit to help us to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory to God. We need that kind of help. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Unfortunately, sometimes we jump ahead of that and uh, we feel as long as I've got this tingling feeling inside of me that the Holy Spirit is talking to me, that's what Paul is talking about. No, Paul is not talking about that at all because the Holy Spirit will never teach you something that Scripture has not already taught you, what God has not already revealed through his apostles, you see. And so we have to be careful sometimes that we, we recognize that, yes, God has given his spirit to us. But in the context of what he's talking about here, it's not that we might have all knowledge. It's that we might know and have the help to so live our lives that we bring glory to God in the church and through Christ Jesus. Can you see what I'm hammering on here? Don't take a passage of scripture or a promise out of context and apply it wherever you want it to go. That is terrible hermeneutic. What is hermeneutic? It's interpretation. That's hermeneutic is from the Greek word hermeneu, I explain. And so when we take a passage of scripture out of context and apply it somewhere else, that's terrible application of what the scripture means. That's what really excites me. Uh, and, and I just get carried away with it a little too much sometimes about Wes. And his preaching. I mean, this guy has done his homework. And when he gets up on Sunday morning, like he did this Sunday morning, wow. You know, that just gets a Bible professor all excited and goosebumps and the rest of it. Whew, chills. Um, he's going to talk to us there about the hope that we have. And where does he go? He goes to Romans. Well, it should be Romans chapter 5. Because that's what he talks about, you know, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character, you know, produces hope, which produces love. Great passage of scripture. But he drops back to chapter 4 of Romans. And when he did that, I thought, Wes, where are you going? Well, what was he doing? He was providing the context for that passage of scripture that he was talking about. And that really pleases me and gets me all excited about Wes's style. He preaches inductively. Now, I'm throwing a big word on you there, but you know what it means. He preaches inductively. What does that mean? It means he preaches out of the Scripture, not into the Scripture. When we take a topic, and what I like about 
less as he doesn't normally talk about topics, although he's got a topic, what does he do? He goes to a passage of Scripture and just tells you what the passage of Scripture says. But topical preaching very often takes a concordance and goes all over the Bible finding similar words and bringing them together to make a point. Most times taking a passage of Scripture way out of context, what that passage of Scripture wasn't talking about in the beginning. But one of the things that I've said that really pleases me about what Wes does is he stays in the context, and you get what the Scripture is teaching out of that context. And that's what Paul is talking about as he works through this here, especially this business on the Holy Spirit, is we need to remember when he makes a reference to the Holy Spirit, the first thing we need to ask ourselves, what's he talking about here? What's going on? What's the context? And that safeguards us, taking it out of context to some place it shouldn't go. I've tried to get you to understand this from the very beginning, and I've driven this point home ad nauseum, because I've seen some of you go, oh, here he goes again. Okay, uh, What is Ephesians all about? That we might so live our lives that we've been glory to God through Jesus Christ and the church. That's what he's writing to these churches about, that they get this thing right. And so it's within that context now that we need to come back and say, okay, how does this passage reinforce that? Well, somebody says, well, how do you know that uh, uh, the theology of Ephesians is that we might so live our lives that we bring glory to God through Jesus and the church? Well, that's a theological statement. It's a biblical theological statement. But it comes as a result of taking a book of Scripture, like Ephesians, and reading it through and reading it through and reading it through and identifying the themes that keep popping up in this book. What's he keeping coming back to? And when we get those things sorted out, we get an idea of what this book is all about. Okay? Then we can start plugging the texts into it. So context is so important to our understanding of how we apply certain passages. Okay, I went off on a tear there. You will forgive me for that. But here's the reason why. Because it is so easy because of what we're hearing out in the world there to take what Paul is saying about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here out into other places. Try to keep things contained. One of the, the ones that we do the most injustice to are those passages in John's Gospel when he's speaking to his apostles just before he goes out to die and he said that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will come and he will guide you into all truth and he will call to your remembrance everything that I have told you. Um, what's he saying there? Is he making a promise to you? Who was he talking to? The apostles. You see? And so we put, take those promises and keep them within his promises to the apostles. It would have been great if all of a sudden when I was writing a final exam that I could just say, hey, Lord, please send me your Holy Spirit to remind me of everything that the teacher told me that I need to get on this piece of paper. That's not what Jesus was talking about in John. But we take that block of material out of context from the apostles. He was talking to the apostles when he said that. All right. Does that shake you up a little bit too much? 
Okay. I, I was hoping to shake you up, but I, I failed. Um, so let's come back to this text here. How are we doing? Uh, let's see. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, wow, he may grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Explain that to me. How does Christ dwell in my heart through faith? Isn't that a tough one? Is he saying that Christ will dwell in our hearts? Yes, Christ will dwell in our hearts. How? Through our faith in Jesus. When we come and say, this is what Jesus wants me to be or who he wants me to be, and I'm going to ask him to come into my life and help me to do that. It's through our faith in what Jesus has taught that we come to have him dwelling in our hearts. Okay. Mm. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, wow, I mean deeply planted in this business of love. Okay, what, what's he talking about here when he's talking about love? Well, the word love is one of those words that's got, you know, lots of sides to it. But the word basically is from the Hebrew, the Greek word agape or agapao, which talks about the desire that you have for the very best for others. It's a cognitive thing. Okay. The word love doesn't have its roots in an emotional experience. Yeah, we do have some emotional experiences, don't we, that cause us to love somebody. That's good. That's fine. But when he talks about it this way, this, this love is the decision that we make, the cognitive decision that we make there, that we're going to desire the very best for that other person, whatever it costs. In other words, to have the kind of love that God had for us when he sent Jesus and Jesus had for us when he died on the cross. Do you think Jesus made a cognitive decision to go to the cross? Huh? Yeah, I would think so. When he prays to God just before, what did he say? May this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done. In other words, Jesus decided. God sent him. God decided. Jesus came and he decided that he was going to do what God wanted him to do and die on a cross. That's a cognitive decision. I mean, we weren't the kind of, Paul tells us that over there in that same passage in Romans, that we were not the kind of people that Jesus said, oh boy, I'm going to go die for those people. They're really nice. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, you see. And so again, when we come to this word love, we need to recognize. Now, don't take me wrong. I'm not saying that love... <laughs> Um, doesn't have an emotional side to it. Because when you make a decision to pray for somebody, to do the very best to help that somebody, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to start liking them or loving them. Paul Faulkner and Carl Brookine. How many of you know who Paul Faulkner and Carl Brookine were? Paul Faulkner was the tall one, and Carl Brookine was my size. 
Okay? They did these marriage enrichment seminars all over the world. And Paul made a statement that shook me up at one time. Uh, and he was talking, he says to uh, uh, a husband or a wife, and, and he says, well, I just don't love her anymore. And Paul says, why don't you just start loving her? And very soon you will love her. In other words, start making a decision that this is what you're supposed to do. And that grows on you. Now, I don't think that was the answer to all of the problems, but sometimes it is. We just need to make a decision. I'm being stupid here, and I'm wrong. So I need to think of the other person first. Cognitive decision that will grow into an emotional side. Okay, come back here. That we may know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That's that Gnostic stuff. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Just think about that. Paul is saying that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, um, over there in Colossians, chapter uh, 1, verse 19, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, the fullness of Godhead dwelt bodily. Jesus was God. That's what Paul is saying there. The fullness of Godhead dwelt bodily in him. And we have the same thing here, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God or of divinity. And, you know, that um, is difficult for us to understand, but let me try and help you on that. The word that is translated both in Colossians, chapter 1, verse 19, 2, 9, and here and elsewhere, is the Greek word pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, pleroma, which is a, an interesting word that stretches wherever you go with it, but it was a word that was picked up by these false teachers, the mystery religions and the Gnostics, that talked about the essence of the glory of God. And so when Paul says that in Jesus all the fullness of Godhead dwelt bodily, he's saying all of the essence and the fullness and the glory of God is found in Jesus. Doesn't he start up at the beginning of that passage over in Colossians chapter 1 verse 3? He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians chapter 1. And so we have to take this word play Roma here and try to understand what it means. He says that you may be filled with the fullness of the glory and the majesty of God. Why? I'm sure you've had this, 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 this thrilling thing. Uh, I go to Ghana with my son Dion, he's my oldest son, to go there and we get to the customs and the, the immigration people and uh, Dion goes through first and he hands his papers through and steps high, and then I go through and, hand this, and the guy looks at me and says, is that your son? And I said, yeah, that's the same name on the passport. He says, no, I can see him in you. We have features that are similar. We did before I got wrinkly and that, that type of thing. And his son, my grandson, said to his mother one time some years ago, she said, is daddy going to get wrinkly like grandpa? <laughs> Sometimes we lose on those things. But nevertheless, we carry within us, don't we, the image of our family, the image of our parents. See? And so 
we carry as Christians within us what? The image of our Father, the fullness of the glory of God is found in our lives. Why? Because we're his children, and he sent us his Holy Spirit to help us to so live our lives that we live like God. And this is what Paul is praying for there. Now, verse 20. To him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice what the high note that he, what's, what's this all about? That we might so live our lives, that we bring glory to God through Christ Jesus and the church. Now, next week, we're going to change somewhat significantly and go from the theological emphasis that we've been looking at to where Paul says, okay, now this is what I want you folk to think about, and this is how you should start to live. That's the difference of going from theology to paranesis, the practical side. So chapter 4, verse 1, notice how he begins, and then we'll quit. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Isn't that wonderful? Notice, let me read that to you again. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What life? Have we been called to? To so live our lives that we bring glory to God in the church. So I'm begging you, he says, that you live according to that in your life. We'll pick up with that next week as we move on.